This is Music Ed Amplified. Hello there, all you phenomenal music educators. Welcome to a brand new adventure, one that I wholeheartedly believe is full of possibility. This brand new podcast, Music Ed Amplified. I hope you're ready because I'm beyond excited to continue my journey toward becoming a better music teacher, a better first steps and conversational soulfish practitioner, a better teacher of teachers, and really just a better human. If you've been a listener before, you'll quickly recognize what is going on since so much of it will be familiar. You'll be subjected to a healthy dose of my constant real talk about life as a music educator with all its ups and downs tempered with tons of unnecessarily loud laughter, eye-rolling, oversharing, and most likely a tear or two along the way. To this raucous mix, I can now add a broader assortment of topics, approaches, and philosophies as we continue together on the journey to creating a more musical world, one that is more joyful, more thoughtful, more honest, and more just. I chose the word amplified with great purpose, As you know, I am a podcast host who is a First Steps and Conversational Solfege practitioner and famed teacher trainer dedicated to making sure that the podcast serves to educate, encourage, support, challenge, and inspire you. But now I also want to amplify the voices of those from all corners of the music ed universe and importantly, amplify the voices of phenomenal master teachers and musicians who are Black, Indigenous, and people of color along the way. To that end, in addition to occasional real talk segments or answering listener questions, I will now also frequently feature a new segment that the Star Wars nerd in me could not resist calling Jedi Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Training, an acronym brilliantly conceived of by my friend, Dr. Sharon Bain. I want to be very clear about something at the outset. I'm a Filipino-American woman who is white presenting. I'm not an expert in any of these topics. I'm a new learner, a Padawan, if you will. And as such, my desire in these Jedi moments is not to pretend to have any wisdom for you, but rather... I want to seek wisdom, find others on this same path, and learn from all kinds of experts on my journey to become an anti-racist, both as a person and an education professional. And of course, I will share what I learn as I go so we can all keep learning and growing. The Music Ed Amplified podcast is a place for amazing music educators from around the world like you to come hang out for a while so you can be encouraged and supported You can have your voice heard, you can be validated, lifted up, renewed, challenged, and educated in order to better see, love, and joyfully teach every student sitting in front of you. It seems fitting that this premiere episode of the podcast is basically just one long Jedi training moment with our very first guest, the amazing Dr. Karen Howard, who I interviewed for part one of what I hope becomes a series on recognizing, confronting, and dismantling racism, bias, and inequity in music education. Karen is Associate Professor of Music at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota, where she teaches courses in music ed, vocal pedagogy, research, and global music traditions. She has extensive training in vocal, instrumental, and dance traditions from many music cultures, including Ghana, and her research interests and publications include works on world music cultures, music activism, and global singing traditions. Karen, along with Kwasi Danyo, is co-author of a resource I cannot wait to get my hands on, the new book, Dance Like a Butterfly, Songs from Senegal, Nigeria, Ghana, and Liberia, the first in a brand new series called The World Music Initiative from GIA Publications. Karen is lead editor of the series, which focuses on marginalized and underrepresented music cultures, featuring music educators collaborating with culture bearers. She is also the author of the very popular First Steps in Global Music, also from our friends at GIA Publications. Speaking of which, don't forget to stay tuned, because at the end of the episode, I am going to tell you when and where the drawing will take place for the free copy of Karen's wonderful book, 
First Steps in Global Music, courtesy of GIA Publications. I so enjoyed talking to Karen, and not surprisingly, I learned a ton. Let's get into it, and I'll see you on the other side. Well, Dr. Karen Howard, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for coming to chat with me. I'm thrilled to have you here. Well, thank you. I'm very glad to be here. So what is your actual teaching situation as of right now? And if anything changed from the beginning of the school year, and I know you're in a kind of different situation, but hopefully we have other college professors who are listening in. Yes. Well, I uh, am part in person and part online. So uh, my graduate students, I have a seminar with them and most of them preferred to stay online. So it allowed some people Mm -hmm. that live far away to take the class this fall. So on Monday nights, we have a three hour (laughs) seminar. And then Tuesday and Wednesday nights, I have undergraduate methods classes. I have choral methods and diction. And um, they really, their preference was to go in person and okay. so far we've been okay. We have we have had cases on campus, but not they're saying not because of classroom contact. So uh what are the biggest challenges? You kind of spoke to that, like the masks. The the masks, the knowing that the students are really struggling. They tell us they're struggling and mm-hmm. we can't do some of the things that we would normally do. I'm I'm I can't walk around the classroom and be close to them. I can't sit with them at the table after. I can't, I can't have them in my office. I, I we can't gather after for a meal to talk things through. I, you know, I can't yeah. have one-on-one long mm-hmm. chats with them where, because, you know, as as we all do, we become part of their family in a way. I, I am very thankful to see some of my students in person and I probably yeah. smother them by loving on them so much when I see them. Yes. <laughs> it's also for selfish reasons. I, 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 miss, I miss being my normal self. I have this question. I don't know if it'll resonate with you, but if the just before summer 2020 started uh, was talking to the just before the current school year started, you would you have something uh, to tell her before starting this school year? Because for me, the feeling we had in March and April and May and June actually is very different from what it's like now. You know, then it was Band-Aid and only survival. And now somehow we're supposed to be forwarding instruction. What would that conversation look like? Well, I guess... You know, I did think about that quite a bit this summer when I, I guess I was I was one of the people that I felt certain we would not go back this fall. Yeah, me so too. So I'm surprised, <laughs> to, you know, I, so I was preparing for a while about, okay, it can't be like it was. That was insanity. So what will it right. be going forward? And I, I guess if I had had the chance to warn myself or advise myself, it would be, don't worry, <laughs> just... love them support them care about Mm. them as human beings help get them through this as you're older and have been through more (laughs) and and have more experiences let let the things go that you always thought were so critical you know i'm bound to licensure standards right i'm supposed to make sure that every hour and every objective and every standard both for content and teacher behavior is met and I've thought, oh if my. they make it through this and still want to teach, we will have succeeded. Right. <laughs> and if they remember how to be hopeful and positive and haven't been turned away because of field experiences that are only asynchronous online without ever being with a child in a room. I, I, so, wow. so that's really what I took into the semester with me was loosening up my, uh, I, I, I think I could try to say my high standards and expectations, but it's just I'm a rule follower. I'm a rule follower and I want them all to dot every I and cross every T. And now I don't even care if I can read it. I just, (laughs) I want them to be okay and to know that I believe we'll be okay. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's funny to think about the differences between, you know, my teaching elementary students right now and yours, you're teaching college students. But in some ways, it's kind of the same. It's like, I'm here to, you know, care for you and get you through this. And you're helping me 
<laughs> by reminding me of why I'm doing this, which is people. You know, yes. um, music is crucial, but it's not the most important thing to me. To me, it's not. Right. So much right. as those relationships and keeping them motivated for music and learning and stuff. So it's the same for you. Um, yours are just much taller and have deeper voices yes. than mine. <laughs> but I honestly, I think about it because, you know, I did teach elementary kids for yeah. almost 20 years. And I think that would be so much harder than what I'm doing. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I, I, I feel like I would really be tested and have to really be on my toes. But, but at the same time, I think maybe it's the opportunity to let go of some of the things that aren't the joyful parts of music making and just yep. concentrate yep. on where is the silly and the fun and the artistic yep, and lovely and the goosebump and the hug and the is class over already moments. Where are those? Right, right. I'm kind of relishing the freedom. So for example, somebody asked on the Facebook page, you know, Oh, I'm very worried because my kids are not doing this in this unit. And I'm like, listen, I don't know if you want to listen to my advice, but here's what, here's what I'm doing. I'm throwing that all out the window. And anything I do uh, for me with first steps in conversational soulfish is like, you know, whipped cream on the Sunday yes. because I'm just this year. It's like, let them know. I love them. Have fun. Right. And if we get to review some concepts and maybe I push forward a little bit with a couple things, the truth is, when I go back next year, I'm starting all over again. And so yes. anything that happens this year is like just something that's priming the pump. And that's, that's we never get that. We never get that. It's always pushing forward, pushing forward and like, okay, well, I'll leave a few kids behind because, you know, now they're moving to third grade. So I have to do this. That's yeah, I kind think, of wonderful. I think we're, you know, those of us that have taught for a long time, I think we're going to be different. I, I really, I don't know how I can go back to the mindset yeah. that I had before because it's allowed us, it's just, and I don't mean to be cliche, but it really has given me an opportunity to think about what do I really care about for my students? Mm -hmm. But let's get to yes. why I really wanted you to be here. And that's to talk about what I consider and <laughs> That didn't sound right. I don't know what I consider. What <laughs> many people consider to be really, really important issues to the profession. And I want to learn from all the work you've done, because you've done a tremendous amount of work. Did you want to, when you started, were you like, I want to be an ethnomusicologist kind of person? Like, I want to study these issues? Or were you like, I'm going to be a music teacher for little kids? I wanted to be a music teacher to little kids. That, that's what I wanted to do. But at the same time, there was always a, there was always a tension that yeah. I, I was interested in teaching in a different way. I was interested mm -hmm. in, I was interested in understanding the community I taught in the students more. I wanted to understand about differences from this family to that family to this neighborhood to that neighborhood. I was always curious about prejudice and bias and how that played out. Mm -hmm. And I could see it even as a new, you know, 22 year old teacher. And I, I worked with some amazing teachers who I learned so much from, but I also learned that people that work with children are capable of being very racist. And yeah. that was a shock to my system that so, somehow I hadn't really thought it through, but somehow I thought if you teach black children, you must love black people. You must mm -hmm. find their lives as of the same value as everybody else's and their ways of being and thinking and knowing and doing and musicking. And the, the shock to my system to find that a teacher who had, you know, eight lovely little gems in her class that were black children and in fact resented them and pretended mm. all day I, it, it rocked my world oh. that happened in the first month at my first job um wow in in, in connecticut and I, I i i i thought well that can't be i that isn't who i'll be and i don't want people to assume that that's okay with me that they can speak that way wow. in front of me 
because even then I understood if I say nothing, I'm condoning that. Complicit. Yeah. 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 That kind of actually leads or is, I'm going to guess is part of the answer to this next question, which is when you consider issues of racism, diversity, inclusion, this kind of general area, what do you view as the biggest challenge for the elementary and middle school kind of general vocal instrumental teachers? What's the biggest challenge for us? Yeah. I, you know, this is, this is my opinion and my, my sense based on where I'm coming from and my opinions are, I can't disconnect them from my identity, right? Which is as a white person, but my sense is the biggest barrier, the biggest challenge that we have to overcome is everybody coming to the table with a belief that racism is woven into the fabric of our education system. Because yeah, that's a big one. If you if you don't if if you're part of a team doing professional development and they bring in a DEI person to talk to you about things and you're just putting in your hours but don't actually believe because you know a school can require you to come to the meeting but they can't dictate your thoughts unfortunately i guess am i control- yeah. mind control when it comes to right, racism, right, right. Yes. i wish there was a it be nice. button right yes but, exactly but i i think a big barrier is um predominantly white people but you know pe- other people as well that don't see it as the chronic toxic presence that it is. It impacts Mm. everything. It impacts repertoire. It impacts what singing voice we think is beautiful. It impacts the way we think is appropriate to move with the body in music class. Mm. It, It impacts the way we treat gender interactions, right? It's, it impacts the way we perceive behavior or speech patterns or, um, you know, colloquialisms or, or, or ways of, of speaking that we judge or physicalities that we uh, perceive through, a, through different lenses um, because we weren't taught differently, right? As a, as a white person. And I have to say, I had a really great undergraduate experience. I was a really bad student for the first part of my undergraduate years. I, I didn't I care, I wasn't, that, but... trying. I wasn't trying to do anything. But then when I got serious, you know, and then looking back and I see what kinds of programs are out there. I had great teachers, great training, but it was missing this, it was missing any piece uh, that had to do with understanding what it means to be in a world where whiteness is invisible and, and yeah that the music that I was taught was the best. No, no hidden language there. The best, sure, no. smarter than, better than, more important than, more refined than, um, had nothing to do with anything really except white men, almost 100%. And once in a while, an Alice Parker tossed in there for I mean, right. and I, I have no disrespect. I shouldn't say, say that so nonchalantly because she has I understand storied career, right, and has contributed so much. But she's often the 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 token woman with even though her right. book stands up to anybody on the program, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I I was aware um, it, it was missing, and I was aware very quickly. I I also was aware as a white person, I wouldn't call it code switching, but I had to music preference switch to hide what really were my favorite musics in order That's to so meet my well you know there was black gospel has always been one of my favorite genres but i i couldn't bring that in as an example or we would never sing it in choir and i was always expected to know about schutz listen to more schutz but well, well <laughs> how about, have you heard the smallwood choir right and i or i always liked rap i grew up with rap you know, yep. an hour and a half from New York City, but the, I still in 2020 hear music teachers say the sentence, rap is not music, and they mean it. Yeah. They mean that sentence. It is not right. music. And I think, well, so I'm not going to even waste my time talking to you about how, how much I love rap music. Yeah. I mean, I've been thinking a ton about this in the past month. 
um, this concept of uh, I went through um, I I wasn't any fan of like classical music or anything before I did my undergraduate work I remember suddenly realizing and I still do love classical music amongst many other things but I remember thinking I have to totally if I want to be um I don't know if I ever articulated it like this to somebody but if I want to be taken seriously as a musician I better be like classical (laughs) music all the time and this is from like I talked about this with my students today you know by the time I was 19 I think I had been to 200 concerts and I'm talking like Madonna Michael Jackson Genesis Van Halen my whole life was pop music and rap music and R&B music and when I went to this undergrad I was like oh that's not good that's like baby music you know what I mean And so now, now it's like to be refined and to be viewed as a real musician, um, I better develop this love and uh, kind of vernacular to talk with other people because I didn't know anything about it. And I've just really been grappling with that lately because I remember arguing with somebody and this person was saying to me, Well, if art is, if there is this high subjective level in art, how can you say that this Baroque music is the absolute best? Like, what are the, and it was such, and I remember saying, like, it just is. So, because all my professors told me that, who I, who I love. And, you know, but I'm like, (laughs) right. And, but in my car. What am I listening to? Stevie Wonder, um, Duran Duran. Thank you. Um, (laughs) You know what I mean? Like I'm listening to, you know, Shaka Khan. I'm listening to um, Beastie Boys. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, and I love it. But but I, yeah. And I feel like lesser than that's what, like I have this kind of this dichotomous thing going on. So anyway, all that to interrupt and say. Not anyway. No, I owe my students what I think is is serving their human rights. <laughs> you know, I, yeah. I, I I think it's a civil right for them to get an open, broad exposure and understanding and with a teacher who models willingness to learn and try of a, of a lot. Yeah, of it's, it's so funny, though, because even like as I'm saying this, I'm ha- I'm experiencing this disequilibrium, like yeah, yep. I'm imagining people in my life who will be very disappointed to hear me yeah. saying these things. Yes. Um, Mine too. And that's OK. Mine too. That's OK. Um, but I just thought when I we were listening to these um, Indian ragas and my some of my students were like, they have to kind of respond. So they went on Flipgrid and made these little videos. And there were these two kids. I just was so blown. They're like, Dr. Strong, why does this music sound the way it does? Why is it so different yes. um, from what we hear? What a great question. And I think <laughs> these kids in my class are coming out thinking, when I hear something new, I'm going to listen to it and understand that it is not weird it is not silly or dumb unless it's supposed to be silly. And now my kids, like my fourth graders are like, that's really interesting music. Like that sounds so different the way she was singing. And then one kid said, if I heard this a couple years ago, I would laugh at it. But now I understand that it's yeah. just different. So I think what you're saying is so, it's so funny how it's so simple. Um, but boy, do we have a problem in the profession and I'll say in America yep. of not seeing what's happening. And so you're talking about this um, racism that's just inherent in pretty much everything we're doing. And then you have this group of people who are like, no, it's not. Right. No, it's not. It's not a problem. And mm-hmm. one question I had for you is um, – what do you say to somebody who says, you know, this is just like overblown and, and, you know, this is just people, you know, everybody's so politically correct. I can give you some examples, I suppose. Um, yeah. 
somebody asked me recently at the end of a, uh, I've been doing a lot of webinars on this the, the last, you know, since May yeah. or June, June, right. July, I suppose. Um, and somebody asked me at the end of a workshop where we did talk quite a bit about, it wasn't solely an anti-racism in elementary music workshop, but we certainly talked about it quite a bit and some of the constructs and ideas related to it. And at the end, she asked me, and I knew immediately where she was going to go with it because I hear this so often. I worry, she asked me if I, I, I do you worry about our children losing their sense of American songs? And, you know, I let her finish and I said, can, can you be more specific about how you define American songs? Because I think that you and I might define it differently. So I can answer sure. better if I know what you mean. Um, and so she started to list songs that we now know. Um, no, let me correct that. It's been <laughs> known that they were blackface songs, but uh, one thing we do in music education is the day we found out something is the day it happened, right? Right. Oh, no. Right. So it's brand new information. Songs. Blackface songs now are bad. No. They've always they were been always bad. You bad. just weren't, you didn't care before. <laughs> right, you right, right. Before. You didn't care to know what were the songs about that you're using in your classroom, right? So yep. I always emphasize if somebody says, well, it's it's not really that much of a problem. And I have a black friend and I ask them how, I hear this <laughs> a lot, I asked this black friend yeah. how they felt about, and they said it wasn't a problem. But blackness is not monolithic. Right. There's no one pat response. Everybody is an individual. Everybody will have their sense of something. And and what I encourage people to have is an obligation that you pick music that you don't have to hide its history in order to right. feel comfortable teaching it to children. Now, as an adult or a music major or a high school student. In, in a in a setting where you're looking at problematic music or music and that's racism, that's a whole different ball game. Yeah, that that's a different scenario where those songs might have a place. But what I said to this woman is, I don't want anything coming out of the children's mouth that has hate in its background, because I believe in that connection. There's energy in there, and there's intention. And if my intention is, well, this song is based in hate but we love that song and we love when they turn around and find another partner and you're and the, fortunately there are a million other songs where they can jump around mm -hmm. and light when there's a new friend they don't care the song it's the jumping and there's a new friend yes of course of course in a row. um and a, another person well at least three or four off the top of my head have asked my thoughts about stephen foster and I grew up on Stephen Foster songs and sang arrangements of Stephen Foster music, played them. But once I understood that he made a lot of his money um, writing for blackface shows, then my interest stopped. And I thought, oh, I didn't know that about him. I'm done with those songs because I yep. took the time to learn about the history. And somebody has said to me in, in this kind of conversation, but it's beautiful. And I say the sound might be beautiful, but the history is ugly. And yeah. it, it, lots of things can sound beautiful, but where we get ourselves into trouble, which is a very white thing to do, is to think of music as sound only. And yeah. it isn't. Music is in culture. Music is as culture, as you mentioned, the way you're getting your students to understand that music is a function of the people from which it comes, whether it's a composition yeah. by an original composer, that composer comes from their life situations. Um, uh, so I, I, I generally, I, I generally just keep going. Um, and I, 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 yeah. I, I don't, I don't come at it from a place of, well, find people on both sides of this conversation, right? I, right. Yes, I, exactly. I, I'm pretty persistent uh, about there isn't a reason that you can give to me that I'll go, hmm, I hadn't thought about that as a reason to have a six-year-old sing a song like that. that. Right, right. And so it becomes once you know, then you do differently. But we're mm -hmm. still in the game of avoiding knowing by either yeah. refusing to listen, refusing yep. to come to the table, as I said at the beginning, believing 
that racism is embedded in, in our educational infrastructure. And there is now research going back you know, to the to 100 years ago, showing the impacts of this, we're just very selective in music education about what we will listen to and what yep. we'll read. And, and so I've been talking the same way since I was a newer teacher. It's just that now, in this last year, more white people are willing to own the fact that they've been complicit in a system that marginalizes and oppresses a, a part of our student population, which is now over 50% not white. Right. Uh, and and right. when I have that information in my mind, I, I, it dictates my every move. I teach almost predominantly white undergraduates. Graduate students are a little more racially diverse. But I, my undergraduate program, almost 100% white students in music education. And we talk about this nonstop in every single class. Diction, diction, we, I took over the diction class because in my undergraduate experience, it was the biggest waste of time class for me because I, th I thought I went to a French Catholic school. I know how to speak French and I studied Italian in high school. I'm all set there. How about these other languages? No, no, you're going to do French and Italian and some German. But what about the rest of the world? No, these are the ones that are important. <laughs> right. Exactly. This is what you'll sing in your voice lessons. These are the best pieces to compose, you know, to, to have your choir sing. These are the best composers from these languages. So now I teach diction and we do multiple languages with deep dives into why the languages developed the way they did. We don't just, we, we do IPA. But it's a sociocultural connection as well. That's amazing. To what impacted the sound? You're blowing my mind. I never even, I never even thought. And about in it. in choral, so I also amazing. teach choral methods. And what I do in choral methods is, you know, they go back to the projects that they did in world music with me. Part of this works because they have me for so many classes because we're a small school. But right. they take one of the songs they learned in world music class with me and they arrange it for choir. Or they go back into their materials collection that they did in elementary methods that was not a song in English and arrange it for middle right. school choir. Right. So we're, I'm that's fantastic. Constantly, every class they get <laughs> because I don't know who else is going to do it. Right. Well, um, I can tell you hardly anybody. So it's good that. Right. And, and what my hope is that they'll go forward, they'll have a little kindergartner, and they'll have experiences like you describe with your students. And maybe that kindergartner will become a seventh grader who's curious about difference, right? Mm -hmm. It's okay to laugh and think something is weird. We do the same thing, but what I love what you described and it's what I do as well is keep at it until they get used to different and different is normal. Yeah. This kind of leads me to a question. You've certainly touched on it, but here's a phrase we hear a lot, and I just wonder if you could speak to it, and that's decentering whiteness. And I have to tell you something. I have never in my life, and I'm I'm a polarizing kind of gal. Like I'm super opinionated, very outspoken. I have never seen people react more strongly to anything than if I say something about whiteness, <laughs> yeah. like as if I was saying, hey, everyone, I've decided that, you know, murder is okay. Yes. When I talk about racism, whiteness, white supremacy, it's mm -hmm. just, and I've, my family and I have spent so much time just grappling with this. And I'm like, you have to know this is a problem because the response is so, it's so strong. But yeah. if you talk about racism, and you say the word white, and yeah. what, I was like, oh, here we go. I've just not seen people respond more strongly yes. than to anything than this. And so when we say something like decentering whiteness, and my question to you is, you know, what's, what are the implications of that for our personal life and our, but, you know, for this podcast purpose, our professional, our classrooms? Okay, so... Uh, I'll back up a little bit to, to make a couple of points that will connect back to this. We were talking about consistency with 
having our students experience and grapple with difference so that difference becomes yeah. normal and they develop a healthy curiosity and they want difference brought in. It's something they crave, right? And you said something about consistently, and that made me think of, yeah, it's what I always say about rhythm syllable systems. I always make a joke when I'm working with teachers, whatever system you use here, that's the best one. It's better than all right. the other ones. It's better than what that other school uses. It's better than that other district. But the reality is, as long as you're consistent with it, it doesn't right. matter. And it's the same thing with getting children past that awkward reaction to difference is you have to be consistent and stay with it, be persistent until it, it, when I first started doing that, it didn't take more than a month before they were wondering what's it going to be. But I think it is the very same mentality with dealing with that white person response to when you say white and you say whiteness is persistent, consistent, repetition, relentless, unexhausting and i think the reason the reaction is so visceral is that whiteness has been allowed to function on the dl without any yep. acknowledgement for example it's a common um a common point to say um well i was i have this student i have this black student and he's 10 years old we never say i have this white student they, it's, it's a phrase that was being used in race work. I mean, it's, it's been in equity work for decades. It's just, again, in music education, we're really delicate about what we will let in. Mm -hmm. So the idea of whiteness being something, being this construct, this concept that impacts education by its silent normalcy it just is. It's the accepted way of the world. And when you start mm -hmm. naming it, it, it causes this self-loathing reaction that flips yeah. outward as a rejection of what you're saying, a straight up rejection mm -hmm. of that's nonsense. Uh, it, I've, I have heard that in every form, the, the, the good yep, every iteration. <laughs> I've heard people go through and come out on the other side where they realize they were incorrect. Um, and, and it's a profound thing to see that happen. Uh, I'd like it to happen faster for people. I think, I think white people have had plenty of time to get acclimated. And if, yeah. they're, if they're still in the place of, well, you know, Karen can say what she wants about things, but it, in my school, it's not an issue and mm -hmm. we don't see color. What I need to say oh, is, you need to wake up and connect into the dialogue that is happening in our country that people really aren't appreciating if you don't see their color because we are yeah. so racially defined here in the US. If we handle mm. things differently, perhaps that wouldn't need to be how we are. But if you say, well, I don't see the color of my children, then it means you don't see the experience that they come to you with, especially if they're black or brown or indigenous. Sure, absolutely. Especially. You don't see the kids. Right. You don't see them you know? who they are. And some of my research has been in uh, whiteness studies in teacher identity. And whiteness studies has been a field in scholarship from about the late 1980s, early, early 1990s. And it's been a consistent finding now going on 30 years that white teachers have still a major issue with denying racial identities of their students and the reality, mm. positive, negative, neutral, the reality of all of those factors that, that feed into their racial identity. And when they don't see wow. that, it harms the student, it harms the child. Sure. We know, we know sure. this and yet we have some, you know, there are some people that might think the world is flat still. Eventually we'll get yeah. them to where they understand it is. Just for those people who, people who are listening, who are very, very new, you know, so maybe they do say, okay, what does this mean? Decenter whiteness. What does that mean in my classroom? What are some steps? Because I'm always yeah. like, so like kind of hyper practical. Yeah. What would you say to yeah. a teacher who's yeah. like, I'm afraid to ask other people, I'll listen to this podcast. Maybe Karen will tell me something to do. Yes, absolutely. And let me just preface it with a couple of 
<laughs> let me let me put 60 years into two sentences. <laughs> no, really, because it puts the phrase in context, right? So we know we know about the civil rights movement. However, it's not taught well in schools. So most right. teachers don't know, know the civil rights movement. They know it happened, right? They might know about Senator John Lewis. They might, of course, they're going to know Martin Luther King if they, you know, went to school here in the US, but they won't know <clears throat> the timeline, which is repeating now, right? We're, we're having, it's, it's really interesting to overlay the 1950s into the 60s and yep, absolutely now and, and for now what's going the on. youth that are moving and the role that music plays, which is so relevant to us, right? And then that led mm -hmm. into the idea of a multiculturalism movement, which failed. We, I'm still a believer in a multicultural education. However, it failed in concept because we didn't analyze the power and privilege that allowed uh, white supremacy. And that doesn't just mean the KKK. I hope we understand that now. Like yes. white supremacy means whiteness embedded into the fiber of our schooling structure. Yep. Then multiculturalism, we found the flaws in that. So critical race theory came about, which this administration has asked schools to stop teaching about critical race theory and diversity. Um, I hope we ignore that. Out of critical race theory, um, which came from the law and was looking at the ways in which uh, black women in particular were not being considered in their legal situations for the reality of what their life lives were as black women. The blackness of their lives was not being considered what it means to be black in the US. Mm -hmm. And then out of that, well, education wanted to get in on that. So we developed critical pedagogy. Out of critical pedagogy came culturally relevant pedagogy, which was originally intended for white teachers that didn't know how to work with students that aren't white. Uh, uh, and, and then we kept moving forward. The conversation about decolonizing education has been happening for about 30 years. But again, uh, through the beautiful work of Brandy and Lorelei in decolonizing the music room and their extended team, the music education became aware of it. And as I said before, oh, it started today. You know, it's been around, right? If you right, right. Brandy and Lorelei, they'll, they'll walk you through the, the history. And, and then in order to decolonize, you have to decenter the whiteness of the mm -hmm. curriculum in which we are. Now, I'm a white person and I have had people ask me, how can you decenter whiteness and who are you as a white person right yeah, as, who are you to be talking about it and i i depending on who's asking it i hear that question different ways right sure um, i think it is my obligation as a white person the way i practice decentering whiteness is to note where it pops up as dominant in anything that I'm teaching. And that may look like a practical step is look at your repertoire. I, I often say, lay out on a map all the places over a year that you represented in your curriculum or in your choir. Take three years of concerts. Who who was represented in the oh boy. arranger language? We know what it's going to look like for the, the most part, right? For, for the majority of, of teachers in the US. And, what I say is that list reflects what you value, whether you whether it's an implicit bias towards certain right, things, right, right. And so by recognizing that, you can start to decenter the dominance of whiteness by starting to enrich the color palette of your music, not by throwing yeah. in one chocholoza at the end of a concert because there are other songs right. from South Africa for goodness sake but that's one way another way is uh for me for example uh I stopped saying thank you for using your beautiful singing voice when I got because that's a really specific tone and some kids don't sing that way some cultures don't sing that way some genres don't sing that way and I decided to stop rewarding only certain white centric sounds or Right. based on the beauty based on um, and I started just thanking everybody regardless of what gobbledygook comes out the third big biggie right really thinking about the repertoire who's represented in the repertoire thinking about sounds instruments that you 
present as acceptable and worthy. And then a really, really big one here is to research the background of your songs that you're doing. And if they then still seem passable, that you should still use them, share the background that you discover with your students and with your students yeah. model for your students that you care about from whence this repertoire comes. Um, sometimes mm -hmm. we find out things about songs we loved and, and when that would happen for me, I would share with the students and we'd have, you know, not a funeral necessarily, but a, but a farewell. And, uh, you know, we, yeah. we, we loved you and you're no good for us anymore. <laughs> Off right. you go. Exactly. And, so they would see, I'm trying to do better. I don't know everything I'm learning. You know, I would say to them, I, I did some research about the song. I didn't know this before, but now because the, I mean, I started teaching before the internet. Right. So. Wow. Me too. Right. <laughs> I, I, I've come a long way. I think about some of the songs I used to teach. I mean, I was always, I've said before, but I never liked the songs that, you know, why is Sally waiting for Bob? me to come back. Sally, get a life. He's not coming back. He's a loser. He left you on the seashore. <laughs> I never liked songs like that. Or grandma and smoking. Why are we singing about smoking ever? These kinds of things. Um, but I wasn't as clear about the backgrounds of songs until it was easier to find the backgrounds. Yeah, neither was I. And I, that's something I'm lamenting and trying to change. Um, but I think those three things are such great practical things yeah. for somebody who's you know um not yet savvy uh sure. but in earnest yeah so to hear something like lay out what the lay out the repertoire but be willing to look at it that's what's yes. hard for people yeah. yeah it's it's like and it's i don't want to say oh it's okay that you've been racist but it's okay to feel bad about that but the most important question is, what are you going to do? People are going to say, okay, now you know. Yeah. What do you do with this information? That's what, that's so what I matters. love. That's what matters. Yeah, yeah. And I, I will add onto that third step, which is researching the song. Typically, nobody teaches out of all the school, you know, pre-K through 12 music education. Nobody teaches more individual units of music than elementary music teachers because our songs are short and we teach a million of them and we have all yes. these grades. And so sometimes people say, do you know how many songs I teach in a year? And I say, yes, I do. Because I, do. <laughs> I do. And nobody is saying, okay, tomorrow when you go in, you need to know the history of everything because you're not teaching 150 songs at once. You might be teaching a dozen in a week. Yeah. And I would hope that some of those dozen you know something about, but if not, pick a couple and get started. And yeah. this is where the list thing gets tricky. So there's a lot of lists going around right now. Sure. I, I understand the intention, which is the hive mind and save work, but yeah. I yeah. just would caution people. We have lots of lists in music education already. We have lots of lists, for example, ACDA national, has lists of, well, what did California Allstate do, right? Oh, let me look, what did this famous conductor do? Oh, there's a piece, they did it, it must be good enough. So, and yet, no, that's how we perpetuate mis misprogrammed pieces. So for me, what I say is a list is okay if it gives you the reason somebody thinks it should be on that list of don't do this anymore. Mm -hmm. It just says, I heard don't do it. Well, not doing epo e tai tai is very different than not doing jump, you know, uh, a jump Jim Joe, which was right, Jim right. Crow, right? So those right, are two right. very different reasons. You know, yeah, one you is need to know. explicit and what the game? Yeah, but. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think some part of that is connected to teachers who don't trust in their own ability to make great choices. And I don't know I if that's because they received messaging through their schooling uh, or, or what it might be, but I've heard that from many people that they, what's, what I'm hearing as the underlying messaging is they don't think they are the enough of an authority in music education to choose find a replacement for chicken on a fence post for goodness sake which is like saying we don't right. want mac and cheese we want 
a hot dog. Right. But 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 they, but but they genuinely I can giggle about it. But yeah. At the same yeah. time, I can see they don't believe in themselves. They don't think they have yeah. the right. And I think that's because we have this canonized approach to certain repertoire. Um, when you look at mm. collections or, you know, when, I, when I'm looking at sessions that are be, being offered at, at conferences around the country and I see titles and I think, I can't get over that there's a conference where chicken on a fence post is being used in a session. <laughs> Again, the song, whatever, but there's so much music. What if we took these opportunities at professional development to bring in great songs that there's so many we haven't tapped into? Um, yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's what I mean. I think sometimes, uh, well, what you're saying is for sure at work, people don't trust themselves. But I also sometimes worry that it belies something else, which is I don't want to let go of this. Yes. Like, I don't want to get rid of Johnny on the woodpile. So I'm gonna, how about I change the words? How about I, and then you get into this, con this conversation. Oh, are you saying melodies are racist? I'm like, come on. Yeah. Like, yeah. You're just, you're just hanging on. Sorry. Well, no, I, I, you made me think of an experience I had a few years ago. I was giving a workshop um, somewhere lovely and we were working on lift every voice and sing, um, which is known as the African-American national anthem. Um, and in, and for older folks, they often sang that in their schools. If it was a, if it was a right. black school. And I was talking about that history and that I've seen a lot of choirs sing that with no reference, you know, it might be a predominantly white choir, sing that song with no notes in the pro program about what the song's meaning is and, and singing it in a way that doesn't seem to represent an understanding of its, of its history. We were talking about this. And somebody asked me a really great question, which is, well, here in our, it was a, a more rural part of the country asking me about, you know, we're not near a big city and we don't have resources or who might we ask? And so in all sincerity, I said, you might reach out to the local Black Lives Matter organizers to see if somebody, right. and I heard <gasps> from a couple of people behind me and I thought, oh boy, or, or not. I thought, oh, right. okay, <laughs> not here, I guess. But why do I bring that up? It's to say those people likely don't want to change their songs, right? If they don't see, if they don't understand why I was saying, talk to the people that are fighting for the rights of black people to come right. and you have a phone conversation with you about what the song is about they're probably not going to see the need, as I said twice now, they're not coming to the table believing that racism is a problem in schools. So why should I change this song that the kids love? That, yeah, that to exactly. me is reflecting they're not there yet. They don't, they yeah. have not yet either done their own work. I mean, you know, some people really, 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 they read something, they go, oh, and they wake up to the reality of racism in our schools and in our society. Some people, they're awake to it, but they are as stubborn as can be and don't, they are actively not letting it in, right? Yeah. And then there are yeah. some who are actively saying, this is a white country and we're not going to diversify it, right? And in, Right, and we're gonna protect. Right. Right. So, so the, and, and in the, more than ever, I understand that that is a larger part of the population that I ever really knew yeah. before. I didn't, I didn't, I think sure. that's what I've learned in the last few years. I didn't know that, that it was as big as it is. Yeah. Sometimes I get so overwhelmed with discouragement. Like yes. when I hear the, that big sector speaking about, oh, you guys are just, I uh, guess, here we go with the, now I'm a racist, you know, you're pulling that car, you know. I get very discouraged when I hear that because I just want to say, why can't you just consider the possibility that you, like all of us in one way or another, is struggling with this? It's okay. And let's yeah. move forward together. Why do we have to fight? Yeah. I, I just want to say this now because this is the first episode that will go out of what I'm now calling the Karen Howard series. Um, <laughs> that I also just made that up. I'm giving away, I'm not giving away, GIA has donated a copy of your First Steps in Global Music book. You didn't even know that, did you? We love um, GIA. <laughs> yes, we do. And um, we're going to be doing like a drawing, a free giveaway of that book. I'm hoping that the next time you come, 
we can talk about that book and then this new series that you're doing. Am I calling it right? The um, World, World Music, Music Initiative? Initiative. Yes. Which I had no idea about till I saw you post about this book. You just tell us a little bit about this book that's coming out and when you think it might be coming out. Yes. Well, just before you and I started talking, uh, I got a note that it's going to press. So um, oh. any, within a month. But uh, World Music Initiative is a series through GIA that I am the editor of. It's been in the works for about almost uh, about a year and a half, um, really two okay. years, which um, w the, the goal is to uh, pick up where Judith Cook Tucker's World Music Press left off when she retired. Um, and with her blessing and collaboration behind the scenes, I moved forward and GIA was a willing partner. Uh, to go awesome. forward in this way. And so the first book is one that's been long in the works, many years in the works uh, with me and my longtime teacher from Ghana, Kwasi Dunyo. And uh, it's a collection of music from Ghana and additionally Liberia, Senegal, and Nigeria. Uh, the book is called Dance Like a Butterfly because that, that is beautiful, the, the cover. And thank you for saying that. My stepdaughter did the art, Adrienne Gaylord. She also <gasps> did all of really? the. Really? Uh, yeah, she did all of the instrument illustrations inside the First Steps book as well, and and in this new one. Um, yeah, oh, so I'm that's hoping cool. that I'm hoping she does all of the art for the series, and um, it also has PowerPoint slides that go along with the lessons, recordings, videos of the dances, extensive resource lists. Uh, to go along with each of the cultures, with children's books, videos that I previewed, you know, to, to see are these worth looking at, um, to, sure, sure, to go sure. along to build larger lessons. And then coming up in a couple months, we'll have another collection of Somali children's songs. And then another book hmm. coming up probably in the early spring, uh, which is a collection of uh, songs from across China in many different languages, uh, children's songs. Um, so... And then I just started oh, a new man, one today. That's fantastic. I started a new one today with my colleague from Tanzania. Um, so that that'll probably be, I would guess, next year, a year, or maybe a year from now. Okay. That one out, so. All right. So, uh, for people listening who don't know, head over to GIA Publications yes. for Karen Howard. Yeah. Uh, if you don't have that first steps in global music book, get it. And then when this new series starts and Dance Like a Butterfly comes out, you better get that too. And I'm hoping that the next time you come, which won't be too long from now, we can talk um, We can talk about the First Steps in Global Music book a little more in depth. Karen, thank you for your work. And I look forward to learning more from you. I look forward to the next time. Thank you so much. That was a lot to take in. One of the most practical things I took away was the idea of laying out repertoire from past programs and really taking an honest look. Maybe I never considered doing this before because, well, I didn't want to see what patterns emerge. And yet, I still need to do it. My kids are worth it and I need to be honest with myself. I hope you enjoyed the interview and I look forward to having Karen on again in the future. And speaking of Karen... Before we go, let's talk about how one person is going to receive a free copy of Karen's First Steps in Global Music book that has been generously donated from GIA Publications. I will be doing the drawing live from my new Facebook page called Music Ed with Missy the day after this show debuts, so don't miss it, and I'll make sure I announce it ahead of time. So make sure you join the page and follow me there or on Instagram at musicedwithmissy or on Twitter at docstrong26. If you have questions for me that you want me to answer either off air or on air, send them to me at musicedwithmissy at gmail.com. Our brand new podcast music was composed and performed by Jeremy and Owen Strong. Jeremy also serves as the audio engineer and editor for the podcast. I cannot tell you how much I would love it if you would share this new podcast with your friends and colleagues, and if you would be willing to subscribe and rate it wherever you listen. Well, that would just be the giant cherry on top. These ways are the best ways for us to get the word out about the new podcast. Thank you, as always, for spending time with me. I know you are busy, and life is demanding so much from you. 
I hope that it was worthwhile and that you are motivated to reflect on your philosophy and practice. I'll see you next time, but until then, keep doing all you can to create a more musical, thoughtful, and just world for your students, families, and community. Thank you.